I know covering a lot of material in not such a short time, but uh, we are going to be finishing up chapter 20 tonight, and then we just have chapter 21 and a very short chapter 22 left, so we are getting close. Um, tonight, just kind of coming off of the heels of what we discussed last week because we talked about the first resurrection and what happens when you die. And uh, we kind of looked at the idea that's out there of soul sleep versus being with the Lord immediately when you die. Um, you know, being conscious of that or not being conscious of that. Um, and that might be new to some of you and you go, what? I mean, I thought this was a slam dunk no-brainer. But it really isn't when you look at the scriptures. There's so many verses that kind of tend to that, which is why that is something that has grown a lot. I mentioned that I believe that you are going to be with the Lord conscious that you are with him. If that is not the case, it would be, you know, you wake up, you die, you wake up, you're with the Lord. It's like you wouldn't know the time had passed, I believe. But nonetheless, I believe that you are going to be with the Lord and conscious of your presence there. But that was not the end of the story. The resurrection was the key. That is, our hope is in the resurrection. And if death and being with the Lord was all there was, there'd be no need for the resurrection. And we talked about that our eyes need to be focused on that. Sometimes we focus on the end of this life, but no, our, we need to look out further. We need to look to the resurrection. Now, this is all coming in chapter 20 where we have seen that there has been an Armageddon battle. And the beast and the false prophet have been thrown into the abyss, the lake of fire, actually, uh, basically hell. And at that time, then, there is a thousand-year reign, often called the millennial reign. And during that time, Satan has been bound so that he could no longer deceive the nations for that thousand years. There are all kinds of ideas as far as what that millennial reign is. We have touched on that in earlier lessons, so I'm just going to remind you for tonight that some believe that it is a true, literal thousand years. Some believe that we're in that millennial now. It actually just is a symbol, a representation of the entire New Testament period. Some believe that just, yeah, it doesn't really exist. That's kind of more the amillennial approach and that uh, it might have even begun around 70 A.D., that that's when the kingdom of God was ushered in, and now we are bringing in the kingdom of God. And so we're, things are going to get better and better and better until the, the church rises up and kind of takes over and does what it's supposed to do. Now, I think that Scripture speaks the opposite of that and that the church is going to become apostate in the end times. Uh, Thessalonians, as well as maybe we talked about Matthew 24 last night or last week as well, um, which we may touch on again. So in verse 7 here, it says, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison because he was not thrown into the lake of fire. He was bound up in probably to Taurus, this prison. And he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So 
this thousand year period, Satan is bound up, but he's now going to be released at the end. What for? To go and deceive the nations. That does kind of sound like, although I don't believe that's what this is talking about, but as I mentioned last week in Matthew 24, 5, Jesus said that one of the signs of the end would be this, that many are going to come in his name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And I said that we've always used that as people coming and saying, hey, I'm the Messiah, follow me. But it may not be. It may be saying many are going to come in the name of Jesus, having their churches, looking godly, saying Jesus is the Christ. Because remember, Jesus is speaking here, and he's saying, saying I am the Christ. And will deceive many. How? Because they're going to preach lawlessness. They're not going to preach the Bible. They're going to preach Jesus without truth. And basically idolatry, where they form and fashion Jesus to, to be the God they want him to be. Not the God who he says he is. And so as a result, as I think we already do see going on in our country today, there are many churches of almost all denominations, in many cases, where they are claiming Jesus is the Christ, coming in his name, and are deceiving and leading people to hell. Just like the Pharisees went and would make others twice the, the uh, servants of hell. Yet the Pharisees were the pastors of the day. And we can see many of that same type of uh, uh, persons, I guess, today in, in uh, the theologies. So anyway, he's going out to deceive. Some see that this millennial reign might just be limited to Jerusalem, the area of Israel there. It might be. And what I mean by that is this. If you remember what we've seen many times uh, up to this chapter here in Revelation, we've seen that God was gathering people to Zion, to uh, Jerusalem. You know, he talks about the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That seems to be during this time period. So there are many, many prophecies, probably 50 or more, talking about Jerusalem being the center of this. Is that the millennial reign? When people then take you there, he becomes a hoopah, a protection over you. The word of the Lord goes out from Jerusalem. The law moves out from Zion. While the world kind of does its thing, you're protected, you're sheltered, and you're in a great place. Seems like that could be the case of what's going on here. But while you're there being protected, the people of the earth hate you. They don't like you. And they're just kind of doing things because they have to. And as Zechariah talks about, I think in chapter 14, that we're celebrating Sukkot. We're celebrating the biblical festivals. But if anybody doesn't come up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, they don't get rain. So, yeah, they'll come up. At the feet of Jesus, every knee will bow, even if they're ungodly. They're going to still have to obey him. They just don't like him. I don't know. But the point being is... We're protected. And now once Satan is released, though, now these ungodly people are going to see their hope. They're going to be 
kind of revived, you might say, or gained courage because they now have a leader to march up against the city. And that is what is about to take place here where it says Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle. This is also called the Armageddon battle. People who don't really read Revelation, we hear it all the time. First of all, they call it Revelations. And second of all, we talk about a Armageddon battle. There are two of them. We already saw one of these before the millennial reign where the beast and the false prophet were cast into the lake of fire. Then you've got the thousand years, then Satan is released, and now you've got another one. At the end of which, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. So, two battles here at the end. That also is helpful in the timing of things. When we're reading about the beast and the false prophet in Revelation chapter 16, but they're not here in chapter 20, why is that? Well, because these are two separate events. Some try to say, oh, these are the same things, just different perspectives, but it can't be because the beast and the false prophet are gone. Another thing here is the idea of Gog and Magog. Sometimes we see Gog and Magog, but uh, you're going to see here in the Old Testament as well, in Genesis, the, where Gog comes from. He is basically going to be a grandson of Noah from the line of Japheth. Japheth is going to settle in Europe, the European countries. And so some think because of that, being north of Israel as well, that that might be something here. Others, as you're about to see in Ezekiel, are going to say Gog in the land of Magog. That Gog is the king of the land of Magog. So there's really a lot of confusion as far as what Gog and Magog are. A lot of times it's attached to Russia. Some people will say that. I just don't think we know at this point. I have not seen anything that convinces me that we have a solid answer on what, what's going on here. But in Isaiah 11:12 it says that he, speaking of God, is going to raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. I think that that is before the millennial reign. God is gathering Israel to Jerusalem, gathering the, the Christians, and that is when this is. And so all these verses that we've looked at in the past, it kind of gives a little timing to that. So let's look at Gog and Magog a little bit here in Ezekiel. Um, I think it's chapter 38 that I'm giving you here. I don't know where that went. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah, Ezekiel 38, starting at verse 1. And I'm not going to read everything, but I think to understand what's going on here, you need to go back and read it in Ezekiel because clearly that's what this millennial reign is what this is talking about. It says, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Prophesy against him, saying, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now, I want you to understand that I think that what we're seeing here, not only is it the millennial reign, but it, we're dealing with Satan. Okay, that this is a picture of him. Not the Antichrist because they're gone. It says, I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, 
and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, horsemen fully armed, a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. And it goes on and it says, with all its troops, the many nations with you, get ready, be prepared. So many nations are coming with them. You and all the hordes gather about you and take command of them. After many days, maybe a thousand years, I don't know, you will be called to arms. In future years, you will invade a land that has recovered from war. Jerusalem is, Israel is a land of war, has been throughout all of the centuries. But it says that this land will have recovered from war. Whose people were gathered from many nations. That's what I just showed you in Isaiah, as well as many other verses. God gathers them there. And now we see that there's going to be a battle going up against them. If there's any question where this is, it says, to the mountains of Israel. Seems to be Zion, which had long been desolate. They had been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. You and all your troops and the many nations with you will go up, advancing like a storm. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, In that day when my people Israel are living in safety, which, by the way, has not really happened yet. Still, you have Hamas and all of them attacking and whatnot. It says, you will take notice of it. You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army, and you will advance against my people like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, O Gog, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Are you not the one I spoke of in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel? At that time they prophesied for years that I would bring you against them. This is what will happen in that day when Gog attacks the land of Israel. My hot anger will be aroused. My zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at that time there shall be a great earthquake. And that's by what we saw at the last vile judgment too. In the land of Israel, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves on the ground, all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. So God is coming back. His presence is there. And the mountains are going to be overturned. He's bringing his fiery wrath. That is the point of this. And that's what the Armageddon battle is. Notice the people aren't doing anything. This is God. God is going out and the people follow him just as Satan is coming against Jerusalem and the people, the nations are following him. Satan mimics everything. Cliffs will crumble and fall to the ground, etc. It says, every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment upon him with the plague and bloodshed. Pour torrents of rain, hailstorms, burning sulfur on him, and so on. They will know that I am the Lord. This is quite a description of what seems to be, because Gog and Magog are the ones that are attaching it. If I let Scripture interpret Scripture, it is taking it to this post-millennial Armageddon battle, that this is what is going on. So, interesting, uh, Ezekiel 39 continues to talk about this battle. Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I'm against you. And it goes on, I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. So we're seeing from the north, 
all of these things that are talking about that north of Israel, it seems. And it goes on and it says here, as I have underlined, I will give you as food to all kinds of carry-on birds and to the wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. I'll send fire on Magog and on those who live in safety in the coastlands, and so on. So even these birds are going to come and gorge themselves on the flesh of these nations that have marched against Jerusalem. That is also right in Revelation. So, when you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, it gives you a timing. Revelation really funnels this timing down to this Armageddon battle after the thousand years. It goes on. Again, there's so much, that's why I'm kind of hitting the highlights here, but it says for seven years they will use them for fuel. Uh, what he's talking about here is the weapons that these people have. They are destroyed. And he says, you're going to go collect them, and then you're going to use that, their weapons for fuel. They'll not need to gather wood from the fields or cut it from the forest because they will use the weapons for fuel. Plunder, they will plunder those who plundered them. Uh, it says that in the valley of those who travel east toward the sea is going to be the, the, where all of this takes place. It will block the way of travelers because Gog and all his hordes will be buried there. So it will be called Valley of Haman Gog. So where do we get this Armageddon Valley? It's from this word right here. Arma or Harman or Haman, it all comes from the word like a hill. And Geddon. And so Megiddo is also from the same form of this word. And so Valley of Haman Gog or uh, Megiddo is where we get Armageddon from. Anyway, for seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Some think that this is nuclear. And they all use this as an example because as it goes on it says if you find a bone you're supposed to put a marker by it then these people come and they'll bury the bone and whatnot and they say radiation is that way that when somebody is you know after a nuclear bomb you, you the, the radiation is everywhere so if you find a bone the radiation's in it you can't touch it they have to have special people come and bury the bone and whatnot i, I don't think that's what this is yes and the same thing yeah they'll say the hook in the jaw it means that they're being led god is making this happen is all that means but some are going to say that because of israel's natural recess resources their oil and whatnot that that is kind of the hook that draws them to them we want your land that's not why anybody wants Israel. They hate Israel because this is a spiritual thing. That's what's going on, I think. But again, if this is post-millennial, I don't think you're going to have nuclear bomb things. I don't think you're going to have any of that that you're worried about. I think this is the Lord going out and consuming them. There's something else going on. Well, because what we see with uh, Gog and Magog is in Revelation is when it's talking about Gog and Magog and that's what this is talking about is Gog and Magog. So yeah. And it goes on and it says at the end of the seven months they will begin their search as they go out through the land and one of them sees a human bone. He's going to set up a marker beside it until the grave diggers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog and so on. And so you can go back and look at this in greater detail but that's ultimately talking about the same event here in Revelation chapter 20.
It goes on now in verse 9. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So all these people that are marching up against Israel, against Jerusalem, it says fire is going to come down out of God from heaven and devours them. Again, people can say, oh, that's a nuclear bomb. I don't think so. This is God's fire and brimstone, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah kind of thing. What basically what we're reading in chapter 38 and 39 of Ezekiel. So you need to put these, pair these verses and chapters together. Verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophets are. We already, or prophet are. We already discussed that. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan is cast into hell. The same place that the beast and the false prophet are thrown. But what I want you to see here, kind of on the heels of what we talked about last week, how long are they going to suffer? Forever and ever. Today we have this view of annihilism that I said we would talk a little bit about this week. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I think it's important. The idea of annihilism is that when God destroys the ungodly then, he literally destroys them forever so that they're not conscious either. If we're not conscious, they're not conscious. And so as a result of them not being conscious, they're resurrected only to be judged. And once they're judged, then they are thrown into the lake of fire, consumed, destroyed, and no more. No consciousness for the rest of eternity. We get consciousness for the rest of eternity, but they don't. So in essence, the punishment is a quick death and nothingness. Well, I'll tell you what, if that's what hell is, that doesn't sound so scary to me. So it's like what we said. Yes, there are many verses that talk about sleep for the Christians, that you're sleeping, but I think it is like a figure of speech. But we're going to be aware. And I think it's the same thing when they use the word destroy. They think destroy means to get rid of. It doesn't mean to just torture. It means to destroy. But... You know, we use that word sometimes too, like, oh, you know, and somebody gets slaughtered in a game, they get slaughtered, or we destroyed them. Okay, it doesn't necessarily mean that. When I have all these other words and phrases that I'm going to show you, or times where it talks about eternal torment, I think that, yes, it is going to be eternal damnation, not a quick judgment and it's over. I think that is a very scary doctrine for people to have because it really does take away the fear of, I mean, why, you know, why bother with it? You know, it, it, there, it really isn't that bad then. So I, again, I just don't see scripture saying that. Yes, there are many verses that we're not going to look at that talk about destroying, destroy them forever, uh, burned up, uh, you know, whatever. But again, I think that's just the, a figure of speech to describe eternal destruction. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. So after destruction, Satan is thrown into hell. There's this great white throne. And on it is clearly God, Jesus, and 
from whose face, the brightness of his face, ultimately I think it's his holiness, heaven and earth are going to flee, flee away. And as we're going to see in the next chapters, there are going, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, as Peter talks about as well. It says, and there was found no place for them. Why? Because this earth and the heavens right now are not in full righteousness. It's cursed. Romans talks about this, that the whole creation was cursed because of man, Adam's sin. And so even this has to go away. Just like our bodies have to be destroyed in dust and raised now immortal and uh, unperishable, as Corinthians talks about, likewise the earth has to be destroyed and raised new. Because there cannot be any unholiness in the presence of holiness of God. So, it goes on and it says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Notice the plural, books. Notice as well, we're about to see Judgment Day here. That means that, yes, there have been many who have been killed in the millennial Armageddon battle. Satan has received his judgment, and he has been cast into the lake of fire, but the people themselves have not gone through Judgment Day yet. Only the angels, it seems. So now we have Judgment Day. I'll talk about this plural books in a moment. Then it says, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So, Matthew, or first, second Peter 3.13 here says, in keeping with this promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, which I just quoted here, the home of righteousness. Jesus also stated, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So, this is why there's no place for, in this, has to flee from his face. When we get to judgment day, it's all over, and that's a good thing. What I think is happening here is in this first part where books are being opened, that is actually the ungodly being judged. And then another book is opened. And that is the book of life, and that is the one that judges us. Because we are judged based on whether your name is in the book or not in the book. You're not judged by your works as far as salvation goes. So it's okay. book and books. Books and then book. Right. So book what, for Christians, books for none. Book for Christians, books for none, right. I think, yes. Here's some maybe biblical support for that. Um, first, let me look at the book of life for us. Exodus 32, 32. But now please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Seems to be most theologians would agree that's the book of life being talked about. Psalm 69, 28, may they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Daniel 12, 1, 
you know, at this time, this, after this time of distress, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Philippians 4.3 says that the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So it's mentioned many times in Scripture. It's kind of important because I think that this is also why we see during the festival of Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, that they have books that they believe are also opened at that time. We've talked about how the Feast of Tabernacles is a picture of end times and judgment. I don't think it's an accident that you have that being celebrated at Sukkot. Um, Rosh Hashanah is called the, the Feast of Trumpets as well. Rosh Hashanah just means Rosh's head. Uh, Shana is year, Ha, the, so the head of the year is Rosh Hashanah. So we call it oftentimes just the Feast of Trumpets. Seems to be that judgment day. The Jews believe that God is going to balance a person's good deeds on that day, the Feast of, of Rosh Hashanah, from the past year and basically kind of pre, uh, judge him based on the works of what his next year is going to be like. And I'm not saying that's what happens. I'm just saying this is what the Jews teach for during Rosh Hashanah. God records the judgment in the book of life where he then sets out who is going to live and who's going to die, who is going to have a good time and who's going to have a bad time during the next year, they say. And so that book that has been opened on Yom Kippur, or, uh, uh, Rosh Hashanah, Feast of Trumpets, is then sealed on Yom Kippur for the final judgment day. That's how they see it happening. Again, that's them. I'm not saying there's any scripture of that. I'm just saying it's interesting that we're seeing a lot of parallels to the, feast, uh, the, the fall feast here in Revelation, and now we have books being opened, and it's at Judgment Day. So, during Rosh Hashanah, the Jews have a tradition, which is interesting, kind of a greeting that they give everybody, that say, may you be inscribed and sealed for a good year. It's kind of, a, kind of like what we might say, you know, on Easter, he is risen indeed. They will say, be inscribed and sealed for a good year. Because it's like being inscribed in the book of life. We do see other aspects of this in the Bible Malachi 3:16 then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name I love this verse because first of all it shows God is listening those who feared the Lord and talked with each other those who are getting together and talking with each other about the Lord, it says there's a scroll of remembrance written in his presence. And he goes on and he says, they will be mine in the day when I, I can't remember how it's worded, but in the day when I bring my judgment ultimately. So this is also in Malachi, if you go look at it, making a connection there to judgment day and a scroll or a book uh, being written. Luke 10, 20 However, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
must be the book of life. That's what the Bible is talking about. One more here. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I'll never blot out his name from the book of life. So our goal is to be written in the book of life, not to be blotted out. To be saved means to have your name written in the book. To be not saved means it's blotted out of the book. So when a book is opened, which is the book of life, if your name is in there, you're saved. That's it. It's that simple. It's not because you went to church 50 out of 52 weeks. It's not because you fed the poor. It's because you knew Jesus. Bottom line is this. If you weren't following God's laws, his commandments, and, and basically trying to be obedient to God, you just your name is not there. Not because you weren't doing those things, but because you didn't have faith. That's why you weren't doing those things. Faith without works is dead. So we don't need to have separate books for us. If your name is in the book of life, then you've got good works. If your name's not in there, you might have good works. You might not. But works will never, ever save you. God's work does. And because of his work, now you do work. Those works that you do, because your name are in, is in the book of life, those works will bring reward. And you will see that coming up. In Romans, going back to these other books that are open, the plural that I think are probably for the ungodly. We have Romans 2.15 saying, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing them, now even defending them. So some say this is a book of conscience, that your thoughts have been recorded and written down. Yeah, uh-oh. Without the blood of Christ to cover that. Uh-oh. Okay, um, we, Matthew suggests maybe a book of words. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Son of a gun, Right? <laughs> Do you think that as Christians we're going to have to say, oh, you know, you took my name in vain on July 2nd of, you know, whatever. No. Your sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. This is the ungodly. But what I like about that is by your words you will be acquitted. What does that mean? Well, Romans also says that if anyone confesses Jesus, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So in a sense, yes, we confess Christ. Those are the words we're judged by, claiming Jesus or not. But the ungodly, not so much. We also see in Matthew 16, 27, maybe public works, actions. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Now, that can be, again, not salvational, but rewards. It doesn't say punish, it says reward. 
In 2 Corinthians 11:15, it is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Now that's interesting because here we see ungodly people masquerading as servants of righteousness. That means they've got good works. But their end is going to be what their actions deserve. Anything done apart from faith is sin, it says in Romans. So, a good work, going and giving all that you own to the poor, and not having faith in Jesus, is still sin, and you will be judged for it. The only way a good work is a good work is through Jesus. What's what? That's the judgment seat. So the Bema seat basically is just the, the seat, the throne that they would sit on. And so the judges in Israel's day, uh, in Jesus' day as well, like the, the high priest or whatever would come and, or even Pilate had a Bema seat, they would come and sit on that throne to make their judgment. That's basically what, when this is going to take place, I think, yeah. Yep. And that's why we saw a throne there mentioned in chapter 20. He is taking his seat to judge. Um, book of secret words this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares Romans 2 Deuteronomy 29 the Lord will never be willing to forgive him his wrath and zeal will burn against that man all the curses written in this book will fall upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven now, here he was talking about, you write down the blessings and the curses. Blessings if you obey, curses if you disobey. So, if you disobey, the curses that are written in those books are also now being dished out to you. So, maybe some of those books that are being opened is the law of God. Cursed are you who does this. Cursed are you who does that. So, anyway... The Bible isn't clear on all of it, but those are some possibilities here of what's going on. So what happens to the evil people? Let's kind of go back and touch on that. Matthew 18, 8 through 9. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. To me, reading this at face value means you're going to be in there forever. Again, the annihilist will say everlasting fire, that the fire will never go out. Well, what's the point of it if there's nothing to burn? But that's their explanation. It's the fire that is eternal, not the torment. But that's not what we just saw in Revelation 20. Matthew 25. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into everlasting punishment, it goes on to say in verse 46. But the righteous into eternal life. So if you just look at the verse you know, 41, you have that everlasting fire. Maybe it's only fire. But you read on, and it's the punishment that's eternal. So... There, as I said, are three places that are talked about as hell in the Bible. You've got Hades, which is Sheol, the place of the dead. That's all it was. 
Tartarus, which is the holding place of which they were bound in chains uh, for judgment on the last day. It seems like the abyss where they are released to come out of. And then there is what is called Gehenna, which is where we get the, the Valley of Hinnom from, uh, where they would burn their garbage and dead bodies and all of that right outside of Jerusalem. I want to show you a few of the places where this word Gehenna is used, because this seems to be the picture of hell as we think of it, the lake of fire. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. This seems to be what I think Revelation 20 is talking about with the lake of fire. This word Gehenna that is used there would have been very familiar to any Jew at the time. Gehenna to them would be this valley as well where all these dead bodies are being burned, whether it be animals and whatnot, all your trash. So it was constantly burning every day in Jerusalem, all night long. Fires going always. And so this picture that you're seeing is an eternal fire. Maggots were always there, flies and, you know, whatever. Well, that's what we'll see here at this bottom verse, Isaiah 66. They shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die, their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Matthew 18, 18, in the middle, if, you hand, if your hand or foot causes you to fire, you're the same basically thing. He calls it into everlasting fire there, whereas in Matthew 5, it was hell. Here it's translated everlasting fire. So we're talking about the same thing here. Mark, in his version of this Matthew 18, adds where the worm does not die, just like Isaiah talks about. And so let's look at Isaiah a little bit in reference to what seems to be this everlasting fire where the worm does not die, hell, lake of fire, Gehenna, whatever you want to call it. In verse 15 of Isaiah 66, which, by the way, is talking about end times. If you go look at Isaiah 65 and 66, it seems like future events, not something of the past. Behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury. I think we just saw that in the Armageddon battle. His rebuke with flames of fire, for by fire and by his sword the Lord will judge all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. We just saw a fire coming out of heaven there, or fire from in the book of Revelation there, in chapter 20. Verse 17. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol, in other words, those who follow idols, okay? Anything unholy other than God ultimately, you know, is unholy. And I like this, after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together. Seems to be a very strange thing for an end time judgment to be talking about those who eat unclean food. And yet, we see it here as being one of the, the things. It's interesting that God begins with a food law, thou shall not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he's ending on some food laws. What's the abomination? Um, 
Let's see, the flesh and the abomination in the mouse. I'm not sure. I, I, it, it could be, it could be anything unclean, but I don't know. It's very vague and very particular. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it is a strange verse. But again, go look at the whole chapter. This is end time stuff. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. Sounds like people have, you know, gathered to Jerusalem as well as being gathered against Jerusalem. Both of them get to see the glory of God. Verse 20, then they shall bring all their brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations on horses, chariots, um, mules, camels, to my holy mountain, says the Lord. Notice that seems to be the ungodly. Remember Zechariah? If they don't come to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, they get no rain. But then it goes, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. And I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. It shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another. Wait a minute. So the Sabbath is still important in end times as well? Seems to be. After the millennial reign. The Sabbath is eternal. All flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord, and they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die, their fire is not quenched, they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And so I think that this needs to be taken into context in the words there of Matthew about Gehenna. Because Matthew is quoting this. And Matthew is using the proper context of it at Judgment Day. So, I think Gehenna is a very vivid physical picture of hell. Just like the tabernacle was a physical picture of heaven... This valley where all the trash and everything is burned and the worm and, and maggots and everything seems to be a very vivid picture of what hell is. And yeah, I'll leave it at that. Isaiah 30, more kind of dealing with this Gehenna area. There will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of waters in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as a light of the sun and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as a light of seven days. In that day, the Lord binds up and bruise, the, up the bruise of his people, heals the, the stroke of their wound. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and his burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation, his tongue like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream. The Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of his arm with the indignation of his anger and the flame of a devouring fire, with scattering tempests and hailstones. For through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down as he strikes with the rod. And in every place where the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, he will be with tambourines and harps and in battles of brandishing, he will fight with it. For Tophet, and Tophet here is that same word that's used for Gehenna, Tophet was established of old. Yes, for the king it is prepared. He has made it deep and large. Its pyre is fire with much wood. 
The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, kindles it. So, interesting here, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, the light of the sun being sevenfold. Um, it seems like if this, to put this in a timing, has to be right after the millennial reign, it seems, but not very far after, because when we see in chapter 21, there will be no sun anymore. And so it seems like during the millennial reign, it's still going to be there. After that, though, the sun is gone. So just a little timing there. Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So again, the annihilist will say, listen, he's destroying the body. Likewise, your soul will be destroyed, just like your body. Well, I don't know how it all works, but I know that their body will be destroyed. But I think that they will be in ever, everlasting soul torment too. Um, again, I don't have to understand it. I don't think we're capable of it. But that's a verse that they will use. James 3, 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is set so among our members that it defiles the whole body. It sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. Again, both of these verses and the one I'm about to read is the word Gehenna here. Matthew 5, 21. Um, Whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell, fire. So anyway, um, I think that even without a body, you can be tortured. Remember Legion, uh, I think I mentioned this last week when Jesus came, he says, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? They know that they're going to be tortured and these are spirit beings. And so the spirit can be tortured. You don't need a body to be tortured, to go through suffering. But anyway, that's the only places in the New Testament that we see the word Gehenna. Um, Matthew 25:31. Again, um, this seems to be after the millennial reign because judgment is taking place where the ungodly have now been resurrected. And the resurrection doesn't take place until judgment day. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. There's that Bema seat, Deb. All the nations will be gathered before him they all come before him to be judged. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. The book of life and other books. He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now is when you inherit the kingdom of God. Somehow, I think you've been with the Lord in paradise, you know, in his presence somehow, but you don't get heaven, you don't get to enter the full kingdom of God until judgment day. And he says, then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, oh, well, I guess we did that, for I was hungry and you gave me food. No, I didn't, lost my place. The king will say, did I? 
Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Then it goes on and then in verse 41, he's going to talk to the ungodly. And then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food and so on. So um, again, works are associated with your faith. But the works don't save you. The works are just evidence that you did have faith. And you can do all the works you want, and that won't gain you faith. Faith is something that comes from the heart. Faith is, is something that is a choice, ultimately. And when that happens, the Spirit of God coming into you, because you can't even do that, He's the one, just as we take, when we take communion, we talk about, Lord, you know, blessed is he who brings forth fruit, works, from the vine. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can't be good on your own. The only way you can be good is by having a heart that's chasing after Jesus, and then you receive the nourishing sap that brings the good works into your life, and you're rewarded for basically what he gives you. <laughs> what, a, what a great deal. By the way, there is some parallel. I'm not going to go into this too deeply, but to Noah's ark here. Noah entered the ark and waited seven days before the floodwaters began to rain to destroy the earth. Likewise, we have to wait until the seventh day is over. Remember we talked about each day of creation patterning a thousand years of history, like a day is like a thousand years. And that seventh day of creation, the Sabbath rest, is what the millennial reign seems to be being pictured of. After that seventh day, then um, when that is over, God destroys the heavens and the earth to make a new one. After the seventh day for Noah, God destroys the earth and, you know, brings it out anew. So just a little picture parallel there. Second Peter 3 we talked about this a little bit where Jesus goes and preaches to the spirits who disobeyed long ago in the days of Noah, um, talking to those who had uh, perhaps, uh, well, let me just read First Peter 4 first here. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. One of two things. Some say this refers to 2 Peter 3, that when Jesus went and he preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago, possibly. Others say that this gospel, that this gospel was preached by or to those who were believers but now have passed away. So it's like your grandma and grandpa, you might say. Something like that. So depending on. But anyway, since they believe, they will live again. It says that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Anyway, just pointing that eternal life. All right, verse 13, getting close here to finishing up. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his 
works. So, notice here, this seems to be the ungodly to me. The, if, we've, if I'm right in what we've talked about before, the godly was the first resurrection. Then the ungodly, and they're all coming up out of the earth for judgment and being judged according to their works. Not rewarded, but judged. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Brian, is that is the first resurrection before or after the thousand years? Before. Before. Now again, there's two views on that. Maybe all Christians, and they're all there. Or, uh, I think it was Noah that brought this question up last time. What about those that uh, talk about, you know, the rest of the dead do not come to life until after the thousand years are over? Does the rest of the dead mean the ungodly, so that they come to life to be judged? Or is it the rest of the dead that, because it also makes uh, reference to those who come out of the tribulation, those who did not take the mark of the beast, I think it talks about. Well, again, it can go either way. If everybody has had a mark of the beast moment, which is simply choosing to follow God or not follow God, then somebody who died a, a thousand years ago, who was faithful to God, did not take the mark of the beast, would also fit that description. So I don't know which is right, but I'm kind of leaning towards the fact that the first resurrection is for all the believers. So... Um, We've already talked about our sins being cast as far as the east is from the west so that when we are judged, it isn't by your sins. You will not be judged by your works. You are judged by faith or no faith. It's a pass-fail. And then you're going to be rewarded by what you did with your faith. Isaiah 65. Again, Isaiah 60, all these are end times. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. That is going to take place here in chapter 21. But notice it says, The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. People often think, Oh, are we going to remember you know, a brother who was an unbeliever and perished? I don't think so. The former things will not be remembered. I was just talking with Chrissy earlier about this in some ways too, that you're not going to need to know your relationship. I, I'm not going to go over it again, but... Many of you know that I, I had a dream years ago that I really feel God gave me, and I recognized Paul and Barnabas and Bartholomew and all these people, and I knew them. I did not need to be introduced to them. I did not have to have a history with them to have a connection. There was no former thing that I needed to remember. As a matter of fact, Bartholomew and Barnabas, I knew nothing of them, even in the Bible at that time. But when I went to hug him, it didn't matter because I had a connection with him. There was nothing of a former thing that had to be there for me to have that connection. Well, you didn't even know that those names were in the Bible. Yeah, I, I wasn't even sure that they were. So anyway, point being is I think that's, sometimes that can be a depressing thing for people. Oh, the former, I, I'm not going to remember my mom? No. Well, again, we're dealing with a different situation. We're dealing with Christians, too. 
And that's the thing is, you're going to know. If your mom was not a believer, no, you're not going to know. If your mom was a believer, of course you're going to know her. But you don't need to have a connection of, oh, you raised me in order to love her and to know her. Just like I didn't have to have a connection with Barnabas to know and love him, I, there was just, it's like I knew everything about him. And I think that that's the way it's going to be, that it won't be a disappointment, it's a blessing that <clears throat> you're going to love your mother as much as you love a stranger off of the street because there is a body of Christ that is one. I can't describe it, I can't put it into words, but I think that's, how I understand it based on that to me. And, and you're going to love them more than you ever could here on earth. On earth, we still remember the bad things sometimes. We remember the fights, the arguments, the, the disobedience, the whatever, the annoying uh, things they did. No, none of that. Okay? Um, so, basically, in essence, there will be no sad things in heaven. Now, as far as I, I feel it's important to talk about this since I've been harping, works don't get you to heaven. They don't. They will not. But don't forget there are rewards. There are degrees of glory, as well as, I think, degrees of punishment for the ungodly. The servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. <clears throat> some are going to be beat with several blows, some with few blows. <clears throat> We know that 1 Corinthians 3.8, the man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. I'm just going to show you a number of ideas here. I'm not going to read this whole parable because I'm out of time, but uh, the parable of the, the minas, the basically he gives a servant 10, another one 5. He comes back and he says, what have you done with it? What have you done to invest? And the guy says, well, I knew you were a hard man. I, I hid it. Here it is. The one you gave me, I'm, here it is back. And the guy says, well, you should have invested it. But the guy that said, here, you gave me five, I got five more. He says, blessed are you, take, take uh, and, and have ten cities. He blesses those who invest in the kingdom of God, invest the faith that God gives you. There's a reward for that in heaven. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you want to just say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to go to church on Sunday and the rest of my life is, you know, building a home and getting my nice cars and going on vacations and, uh, you know, every fun thing I can imagine doing, fine, I'll see you in heaven. But you will not receive the rewards that the person does who decided, you know what, I'm not going to chase after those things. I'm going to invest in the kingdom of God. I'm going to go talk to people about Jesus. I'm going to go out to the fair, and I'm going to, you know, hand out tracts, and I'm going to talk to these homosexuals at this gay parade, and I, the gay parade, gay pride parade. Gay pride. Yeah. But anyway, there are rewards. Look at this, Daniel 12:3. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. 1 Corinthians 3, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation, the foundation of Jesus, 
using gold, silver, costly stones. Gold, silver, and costly stones, I think that's going out and sharing Jesus with people, investing in the kingdom of God. Or wood, hay, and straw. All your vacations, all your homes and cars and bikes and toys. He says his work will be shown for what it is because the day, capital D, judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, meaning gold, silver, costly stones. All the work for the kingdom. It says he will receive his reward. But if it is burned up, wood, hay, stubble, all the vacations and all these things that you spent time on here on earth, it's going to burn up in a fire. He will suffer loss, but look, he himself will be saved, but only as though escaping through the flames. You believe in Jesus, you're saved. But maybe only as though escaping through the flames and you will have a loss of rewards in heaven. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Matthew 16.27, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Again, these are the rewards, not the punishments. There are blessings in what we do and how we spend our time and invest our life. And so keep that in mind. Our hope is the resurrection, but at the resurrection, we want to be able to hear that, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And there's such a paradox. Just like, hey, I can go help an old lady across the street hoping to you know, get some money or that that guy's watching me and I wanted him to see it. And it was sin. I get no reward from that. And Abby does the same thing out of the generosity of her heart and care for that woman. And she's going to be rewarded for that in heaven. We both did the exact same thing. But one was out of faith and one was not. Therefore, if you have this idea, oh, I want rewards in heaven. So I'm going to go sell all I have and give it to the poor. And I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. So that you can get rewards in heaven. I think you just lost your reward. See that paradox, that catch-22? You can't seek to go do good, good works. What you need to do is seek to chase after Jesus with all your heart, mind, and soul. You study his word. You, you dive into his word. You make choices of obedience and say, I'm going to follow your word. I'm going to turn off this filth on the TV. I'm going to turn off this filth that's on the radio. I'm not going to hang out with this, this person anymore because all they ever do is cuss and swear and they tell dirty jokes and they make my mind, they don't uplift me. They don't, God and Christ are not glorified in their presence. I'm not uh, challenged by them. I'm not going to hang out with them anymore. You chase after Jesus and let me tell you, all of a sudden you're going to just start seeing that you're doing things in your life that are an investment for the kingdom of God. Chase after Jesus. That is what we need to do. Um, I am going to close on that. And there was just a little thing that's a little different topic that I'll share maybe next time. But that will complete chapter 20. And in the meantime, just uh, throughout this week, go seek God. Seek Him with all your heart. Because... 
I was talking with some other people here too this week in regards to just demonic oppression and things that are going on in the churches today even. And how sometimes we can chase after all these nooks and crannies in our lives. It's like, oh, you know, I, I'm struggling with pornography. And it's because, you know, I, I probably have a, a, a spirit of whatever, perverseness in me or whatever. Don't worry about trying to identify what spirit you have. Look at what the Word of God says. The Word of God says that's sin. Chase after Jesus. And then guess what? You don't have to figure out what spirit it is because it's a spirit of disobedience. Almost anything that we have in our life that allows Satan to get a foothold in our lives can be summed up with one thing, thou shalt not, in the Word of God. And one of the things, I was going to mention this, and I am going to back up real quick. I'm going the wrong direction. If you look at all of these things that I was showing rewards, you will see that they all are around the laws of God. They're all focused around that in some way, shape, or form. In the past, I've used this analogy. If I'm a 16-ounce cup or a 32-ounce cup, I'm plumb full. If I am a 16-ounce cup and I am plumb full, I'm not going to be looking at that 32-ounce cup saying, man, I sure wish that I could do that. Maybe a better analogy is at Thanksgiving when my brother can eat you know, four helpings of turkey and I had my two and I am plumb full and stuffed. I don't care if there's another plate. I don't want another plate. I'm full. And so just know as well, too, that these degrees of glory you're going to be you're not going to have any sorrow but i think god wants the best for you whether you know it or not he wants you to be that 32 ounce cup so um anyway all of these things are just so focused around the laws of god and so it is important especially in a day when we're living in a, a time period of the church where we have become the spirit of lawlessness the spirit of the antichrist is in the churches okay the man of lawlessness chase after god and part of doing that is being obedient to his word not to be saved i know i got to say that for all these people who are going to say that's legalism that's works righteous no you didn't listen but it is for your benefit Say no to the sin that's in your life, to those things where you're opening the door into your home to allow Satan to get a foothold into. The books you're reading, the movies you're watching, or the Netflix you're watching. Okay? Or even say no to maybe some of the things that are filling your time, keeping you from being in prayer and in the Word. To guard that time. To honor the Sabbath. Make sure, no, it's a Sabbath. I'm going to be in the Word today. Okay? This is why. Because God loves you and He wants the best for you. Just like my children. Sometimes the things that I would tell them to do, it's because I knew what was best for them. They, did, they were not, well, you guys know this, they weren't smart enough to know better. Right? No. Anyway, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Word again. Thank you for loving us and thank you for accomplishing salvation for us that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. It is not 
by anything that I have done, but it is by grace that we have been saved, not by works that lest any man should boast. But God, I'm going to boast in you for what you have done and what you have made possible, paving the way to heaven for us. And Lord, I know you want to be there with us just as much as we want to be there with you. But I pray that you would help each and every one of us to be convicted by whatever it is in our life that needs to be removed or whatever needs to be added. That not that we are seeking the reward, but that we're seeking to please you because we love you and we want to serve you. Use us, Lord. Speak, for your servant is listening. In Yeshua's name, amen.